Everybody's talking about black people right now. But let me tell you something, baby. Black immigrants are damn near erased from the conversations about immigration in our country. The blackest king means black is regal and rich in history, in purpose, and in lineage. And I looked over at Ryan and I said, that's the best movie we've ever made. They see their dreams. It's aspirational. Clearly, you have an anticipation from an audience who has never seen themselves portrayed like this before. Fifteen minutes later, I was trying to purchase tickets and they are sold out. Sold out! Look, you're going to see a movie about people who come from where you come from. The continent of Africa. About people, you know, from there who had the potential to be all things. Influence. They think that I don't realize my power. They want to marginalize me. I don't care about the powers that be. I care about the people. And even being born in a refugee camp, you say to yourself, or you want people to know, you don't feel like a victim. No. And you never have. Because it has everything to do with the way I viewed the camp. And my mom moved us around the camp to make sure like we felt comfortable with the other people that were living there. And she wanted from an early age for me to be accepting of differences and different cultures. Art plays a bigger role in migration. And to me, migration is art. It's quite amazing that unfortunately, migrants are not being celebrated that much where they migrate to. People are not aware or people are not educated enough or people don't get close to these migrants to know their story. Hello and welcome to Immigration and Democracy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Rulsop. In this series, we'll bring you fresh knowledge and insights from the team at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, led by our director, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, and featuring voices from the field. Join us as we get to know our neighbors through their stories. It is often said that the stories of history are written by its victors. But if this is true, what becomes of the downtrodden? And how can they ever hope to aspire for something greater? if they're never told the stories of their own glorious pasts. You might think talking about appearances and clothes is a frivolous thing, but you probably have a lucky shirt or socks you wear for special interviews. Clothes do wield power. The idea of clothes and power and dignity is an old one. As Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, the apparel oft proclaims the man. Today's guest, Wale Wayajide, is the founder of Ikari Jones, a fashion label that employs design as a vehicle to celebrate the perspectives of marginalised populations. With the use of fashion photography and prose, his work aims to reframe the lens through which migrants are commonly seen in Western society and celebrate the lives and stories of migrants and asylum seekers. As well as being a designer, Wale is a writer, filmmaker, musician and lawyer, and he's a storyteller par excellence. Oh, and according to Esquire magazine, he's one of the best-dressed men in the United States. You might have seen Wally's work featured in the Marvel blockbuster Black Panther that won an Oscar for its design. At the end, when the leader of the African Wakanda nation addresses the United Nations, he does so proudly draped in one of Wally's scarves, which mix images of black power with traditional Western Renaissance motifs. When he came to discuss his work at Harvard Art Museums last November, the title of Wally's lecture had inspired much debate on campus, in defence of using beauty to illustrate the journeys of those who have suffered. While some of my colleagues and students were thrilled to see the world of immigration, which is so often depicted as tragic, reimagined and celebrated as something beautiful, others were more hesitant. They felt there was a disconnect between fashion design and social justice. 
something almost indulgent in talking about clothes when people were dying in the desert and at sea. The theatre was packed. Wale's film received a standing ovation when it was shown at Harvard, and I was among the standing, because I'm sold on his vision. To me, Wale's work is not just visually stunning, it's a force to change the world. Through using clothes and textiles to celebrate black and immigrant culture and heritage, he aims to combat entrenched biases with creative storytelling. In the film After Migration Calabria, which is part of a global series, refugees, some of whom have only recently got off boats and still bear wounds from their flight, tell their stories of survival and hope for the future. They do so while situated in visually spectacular landscapes and wearing the finest clothes from Wally's range. They're dressed in gold, silk and fine embroidery. They're dressed as kings and queens. Through my work as a designer, I've discovered the importance of providing representation for the marginalized members of our society, and the importance of telling the most vulnerable among us that they no longer have to compromise themselves just so they can fit in with an uncompromising majority. It turns out that fashion, a discipline many of us consider to be trivial, can actually be a powerful tool for dismantling bias and bolstering the self-images of underrepresented populations. In today's episode, I talked to Wally about the challenges and opportunities of this work in a discussion that ranges from questions of cultural appropriation versus appreciation to cultural hybridity and creative resistance in the context of the US and global Black Lives Matter movement. While he's deeply proud of his Nigerian and US roots, Wale is very much a cosmopolitan. His work has been showcased as part of exhibitions including Making Africa in the US and Europe and in the Creative Africa exhibit at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. He's lectured about his work in Brazil, Ecuador, France, Tanzania, and the UK, and his designs have appeared as part of the Generation Africa fashion show at Pitti Uomo in Florence, Italy. I asked Wale to start by reading a short excerpt from his essay, where he explores fatherhood from the perspective of being a Nigerian-American immigrant, and what it means to raise a black daughter in the United States today. His essay is titled, After Migration, The Once and Future Kings. Fatherhood struck me as it does most men, with the ego-shattering affirmation that from that moment forth, there would always be something greater, more beautiful, and more worthy of the Lord's grace than I ever would be. Many fathers refer to this moment as humbling, but for what most of us mean is that we are terrified at being confronted by the physical embodiment of our unpreparedness, our mortality, and a new obligation to make the world a better place for our children to live in. My daughter was an adequate number of pounds. She had an adequate number of fingers. Samba played in the room. The songs of once enslaved Yoruba people whose Portuguese captors stripped them of their language but could never strip them of their joy. Her small hand reached toward the light as her half-clothed mother cradled her in both arms. Nurses bowed adjacent like visiting angels on either side of a triptych. Somewhere near Philadelphia, I beheld a Renaissance Madonna who put every brushstroke hanging in the Louvre to shame. We named her after something St. Coltrane wrote because it was the closest we could come to speaking in the same language as God. So um, we recorded the audiobook version of this. And what I learned is that all these pretty sentences on paper are <laughs> actually a lot more difficult to read audibly, which is just like an interesting thing for a writer to discover when you're doing a recording. Like, oh wait, this is very much a mouthful. And you were part of an anthology exploring what it means to be an immigrant in America right now called The Good Immigrant. You wrote, disappointing your ancestors is a worse fate than <laughs> deportation or death. And I wanted to ask you um, 
Are you a good immigrant, Wally? Ah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Because that phrase, I think, is deliberately so um, coming from the mouths of the local population. It's almost a pejorative because it's like saying, oh, you're one of the good ones. You're not like the rest, right? So it's almost like, uh, I'll speak specifically for immigrants. Many of us have heard this because it's used as, as a way to hedge you away from your own people in a sense. Like, oh, you, you dress well, you speak well, you're educated, you're not, you're not like the masses. So in a sense, being a good immigrant is perhaps good in their eyes. What does that mean as it relates to you and the population? But I think if we take the words literally, I think I'm a great immigrant because I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be where I am in the United States. You know, as much as it is such a hideously troubled society, it is an incredible place with incredible people. And I would, well, there are other places I could be, but I'm very, very grateful to be here and for all that is it afforded me. So I'm grateful. I'm a good immigrant who recognizes that there is much good around the world as well. Where are you currently speaking to us from? I am home in Philadelphia. It's a relatively idyllic, I think, given what's happening in the world. But it's basically been a suburban lifestyle for the past several months. And we're lucky that we have a bit of room. So I'm not too stir crazy, but it is still confined living. Somebody who is so mobile in your work, have there been some advantages to suddenly being sedentary? If anything, it's the idle hands read what they will. I've gone back to writing, which has been great because kind of dovetails directly into the work. Uh, I was hoping to work on a documentary that followed up on the previous piece that you saw, which was dealing with migrants in Southern Italy. And because we're no longer traveling, I've been forced to write a fictional screenplay for a feature film around the same issue. That to say, it's something I really had no intention or a conceived notion of planning at the beginning of the year. And now I find myself, because I had time to, veering in a different direction that's interesting as well. So it's just thinking of different ways to attack the same problem. And is that to follow up to your after-migration work? Yeah, and I think for me, I found that in the past several years, for me, I think migration is the issue. I wonder if you could just talk us a bit through the genesis of that after-migration project and why you felt it was so important to focus on that after-element, that kind of celebration of those who have made it. Because the after is what people are afraid of. And when I think of people, when I say people, I'm, I'm basically speaking of mostly, probably you and I and most people who might hear this conversation. Those of us who are comfortable, those of us who have homes and want to keep them, and perhaps might be reticent at the idea of people coming to the areas where our homes are, and there's this fear that we might somehow be losing something. And so we're now dealing with people are here amongst us, and what do we do with that? Who are they? Why are they here? What do they want? Before is equally important, but I think the after is really, if we deal with that, then we can perhaps move to a place where we are a bit more understanding of those who are, are here. Again, the migration story is at this point can be seen as cliched. We've all heard these horror stories. And I think the question then becomes, well, what do we do with these people? How do we get them to integrate? What do they have to offer us? What can we offer them? And so if you then take a lens to the lives of any of these individuals and think about what brought them here, who they love, who they pray to, how they cook, what they eat, what languages they speak, what degrees they have, what are they contributing to the society? I think you'll find that they're very, very complicated and long answers to any of those questions, as opposed to just thinking of them as people who are here to take and take and take with open palms. I think we find that once we give them a bit of a break, give them the tools to acclimate, I think we'll find that there is a lot that many people can offer us. So for me, after is important because after is the really kind of delicate space within which we have to learn to understand people because nobody leaves their home without the impetus of trauma chasing them out of it. 
So if we're going to be in this thing together on the side of a border together, it is incumbent on us to work to understand each other. We're dealing with the now and the present and the here and how can we affect both our future and theirs because like it or not, it is a joint future. What parallels and differences do you see between the immigrant debate in the United States compared to, say, Italy or the Middle East? When I think of immigration and migration, I actually tend to think more often about the European experience. So I'm somebody who was born and raised in Nigeria, West Africa. I immigrated to the U.S. in my teens, but I'd lived in quite a few different places growing up. I lived in the Middle East for a couple of years in the United Arab Emirates uh, in my early teens before settling in the United States. So I've always had this kind of outsider point of view, no matter where I am in life. But when I bring it up in the U.S., the issue of migration, the discussion is, of course, what's happening on the U.S.-Mexico border and with the influx of people coming from Latin America, South America. And so this narrative of the work that I do is actually much less known here in America because it's not literally touching the soil and the ground here. But I think the story is ultimately the same. It's still about people who are leaving home either for economic reasons or because they fear their safety. People who are almost always leaving home against their will or under some degree of duress because they feel that they have to and coming to a place or seeking to come to a place that they perceive to have more opportunity. And then people from that place being very protective and being fearful of who's coming in. So that same narrative can be mapped over Africans coming to Italy over Hondurans coming to the United States. It's a very, very translatable story. And the question is just which geographically specific tools are used to hinder those people, which geographically specific narratives are used to set people apart and to castigate the incoming community, whether it be gangs, whether it be the threat of mass rapes or whatever. It's, you know, these are all fears oftentimes of the, the divider. You know, there's so much in the world to address. And I think the wise thing is often to find what you can wrap your head and hands around and deal with that in the small way that you can. And the hope is that if we each pick a thing or a few things, we can kind of work towards progress together. Looking back on the work that I've made, whether it be as a musician or as an attorney and ultimately as a designer and a writer, it has always been with the idea of hopefully adding some perspective and some nuance to conversations around those who are outsiders. So that ends up being currently in our age, the story of migration. So this is an issue I've tackled both as a fashion designer, as a budding documentary filmmaker, and hopefully going forward as a fictional filmmaker as well. And it's interesting, your background as an attorney, I don't know if you were able to listen, but we had Cerise Lim Jacobs on our podcast the other week, and she won Pulitzer Prize for her opera. But before that, you know, she's a graduate of Harvard (laughs) Law School, and she was working for 20 years as a district attorney. And, you know, I asked her this question about how that legal background shapes her artistic work. And I have the same question for you. This is something that struck me in law school is that it is such an incredible education and it is a tragedy that it's not afforded to everyone. So just the idea of like, if I take a tax law class, oh, now I can understand how to file my taxes. Everybody has to file taxes in this country. Nobody understands it. Or perhaps more relevant, I take a criminal law class and now I understand the minutia and the loopholes and nooses that are set up for people. And it's only because I have a master's education in the system that is subject to the whole country. And it, it's backwards. It's like you have to go into debt and earn a degree to appreciate the nuances of laws that we are all subject to and can be entrapped by. So if nothing else, I'm very grateful for the education. It's something that you are continuously for the rest of your life, I found, both gifted and afflicted with. 
be thinking of, of an attorney, of a lawyer, everything it becomes a kaleidoscope. And that is both a gift and a curse because it can paralyze you. It can force you to be kind of, I think of myself often as being this very Mr. Spock character because it's like you are forced to be very calculating about everything. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean, in, in a practical measure of like, you're forced to look at everything from very, very many angles. But I think what that has given me, and this is not at all a plan for me, you know, when I went into law school, is now I have this kind of education in advocacy and in speaking for and on the behalf of certain individuals. Whereas I once advocated on the behalf of large insurance companies, I now do so on the behalf of people who are on the outskirts of society and who are being relegated to the worst that we have to offer. And you say in your TED Talk, which has over a million, nearly a million views, it's very impressive. Almost close. Okay, everybody listening to the podcast, go and quickly watch it and then we'll boost that number up. Like 100,000 times and we're good. All of your parents. Um, You say to be, African is to be inspired by culture and to be filled with undying hope for the future. So is that a vision that you carry into your clothing line? Tell us about the message of your clothing and how you weave that storytelling into your fashion. Sure. So not too long ago, a couple of years ago, I was speaking with a mentor of mine who was in the fashion design realm. Probably the only mentor I do have that is in that realm. This was before I had the opportunity to make the short documentary, but I was still working on this after-migration project, which is about using beauty to celebrate the lives of migrants and refugees. And I was kind of proposing the concept to her, and she said, this clothing line, it seems to me this is essentially an excuse for you to be an activist, basically. Because, so I don't have a background as a designer, and I'm coming up with these design stuff, but really, I don't have an interest in talking to people about clothes. I think you find that when you speak to me for any length of time, it's less about the garments themselves and more about what I hope to signify with them and the way that they make people feel. And so from the point of view of somebody who is like a mentor, a fashion mentor, they're like, this is great, but can we talk about the clothes? And so there was this push and pull and I realized like, oh, you're entirely right. All of this stuff is entirely just a vehicle. All of it is really just an excuse for me to get in front of people and say, now that we're distracted by the finery, can we talk about migration or racism or or classism or what we can do to address this in a way that it circumvents the usual norms? All these high-end luxury stores, whether they be the Ralph Lauren's or the Louis Vuitton's or whatever, these stores, they would look at you as a customer and there was no kind of thought process towards you being as an individual. And for me, more importantly, None of these large corporations had anything of significance to say about the issues that I cared about and that many of us care about. For me, there's always the question of like, what is the why? So if you're starting a t-shirt company, if you're selling jeans, or if you're selling, I don't know, plates, the question is why? In a world inundated with things that have no meaning, if I was going to contribute in some way to the world that already has a bunch of stuff, the stuff that I make should hopefully be making some kind of statements. And so you have that background of being an outsider, being an immigrant who lives in a world that has kind of a Western lens on clothing. And that's how success and power and beauty is defined. And somewhere in there was this germination of like, well, perhaps I could use my background to redefine beauty through these tools that everybody uses through clothing. And so I began embarking upon creating a design line that was inspired both by my West African upbringing and also by my Westernized European sensibilities. So all that to say, I make clothing, but the hope is that I make clothing that make people look at themselves in a different way and look at society in a different way and and think about their positions in life and and the spaces they can occupy and the rooms they can be in and think about how they've been kept out of rooms and, and perhaps whether they should be creating their own rooms. All of that is the idea that 
by making something that's reflective of your history and your culture, wherever you may be, whatever you've experienced, if you make something that celebrates who you are, as opposed to folding yourself into the constrictive forms that have been laid out before you, perhaps you might find that you are able to be more bold and self-confident. And perhaps you might find that you're bringing something new to the table, which then gets accepted, as opposed to you walking in the same shape and form that's been prescribed for everybody else. So it's almost like the things that have made this weak and vulnerable are actually, in my view, the things that make us strong and make us assets to society at large, whether that be your background as an immigrant, whether it be the way that you identify in your gender, these unique experiences actually add to the conversations and make us all collectively a more unified and stronger whole once we get past the uncomfortableness of being unfamiliar. So by now you might be listening and thinking, well, I tuned into immigration and democracy and here we are talking about clothes. And some of you might think, well, I don't know anything about fashion. And before this podcast, I was right there with you. Fashion is something that we put on this pedestal, but it is also something democratic. We pretty much all wear clothes. And as Wale said, if you wear clothes, then you know about fashion. So this is something that impacts us all. Okay, immigrant rights activism and clothes. And I mean, the images that come to my mind is, you know, Beyonce, when she did that fashion shoot where she kind of wore a lot of African clothes and how that was received. And then the other image that comes to my mind right now is a kind of Black Lives Matter hoodie. And uh, that's not at all what you do. Your work is so unique. And for those listeners who haven't had the chance to see your documentary, to get an insight into what your work looks like, perhaps you could describe your aesthetic and perhaps talk us through one of your favorite garments? Sure. Hmm. Favorite. So I think to describe the aesthetic, it's, I think people see it and it doesn't look unfamiliar and it references certainly everything from like medieval Renaissance era Europe to South Asian influences and the silhouettes of men in like these long tunics to the bold colors of West Africa. That is to say, it is very much like we all are drawing from the beauty and the best parts of the various portions of the globe. So those who have seen the film Black Panther in the postcard scene where the protagonist, King T'Challa, is speaking at the United Nations and he's wearing this silk scarf draped over his shoulder. That's one of the pieces I designed. And so the idea is that you're using these forms that are not from space. Like These are things we've seen before, but I think what is interesting is it's we haven't seen specifically people of color in this very regal, these regal positions. It's, it's rare. Not that they don't exist, but it's rare for them to be seen on the great stages of like a multi-million dollar Hollywood film, Disney film that appears all around the globe. I often use the anecdote of if I'm walking into the Louvre as a young person, I look at the statues of David's and these great works of marble that are positioned to me as the apex of beauty. But it's rare that I walk in there and see anything that looks quite like me. And if I do see me represented in a piece by Michelangelo, it's generally in a subservient position. So there's perhaps an African indentured servant in the background holding a bowl of grapes for the people in the forefront. And so for me, it's the conception of what happens if that young boy, instead of holding a bowl of grapes, what if he's in the center of the frame being attended to by saints and has a halo behind his head? And what if he is similarly garbed in the same finery and seen as equally being luminescent and having equal worth to all for society? And I think that anecdote from the point of view of just garments and clothing, what if that becomes a metaphor for society as a whole? So the first time I began the project after migration with collaborators, I was asked to visit PT Woma, which is a menswear festival, fashion festival that's held twice a year in Italy, in Florence, Italy. Our brand was asked to put on a fashion show. This was going to be like the biggest show we'd put on. Um, it still has been today. It was kind of everything you imagine when you think of a fashion show 
a whole bunch of people backstage make up freakishly tall, gorgeous models built the works. And before going in, this was, I think, 2015 or 2016, it was kind of the height of the migrant crises. Again, in the spirit of making sure everything I do says something of merit, I asked that we cast half the models be actual asylum seekers and refugees. So long story short, we put on a fashion show that is conventionally fantastic. Everybody's beautiful, objectively so. At the end of it, we announced to the audience that, by the way, thank you for the standing ovation. Half of these people you were just clapping for are the same people that you disregard in the street. And so you have this almost social science experiment within the realm of the fashion world, which is a world that's incredibly troubled and dismissive of anybody who's not a very specific looking thing. And the idea being that what would happen if you just gave somebody an opportunity for a job and you are surprised that they stun you with their grace, their willingness to work and the potential they can achieve. And so that's just one person doing fashion. What happens if we all do this in our various roles in the world? What happens if you let somebody who's from Syria who has a degree but has had difficulty interning your office? What happens if you let a kid from Nigeria come and cook in your restaurant and, and learn the ropes? The idea being that each of us has a thing we can offer and it doesn't have to be this world-changing thing. It's just, here's a very small thing I can do for one person because that's what I can touch. But as a lawyer, I think in the aggregate, always, it's almost like the worst or best case scenario. What if we all do this? What is the mass effect? The effect that one fashion designer helping tell the story of two migrants doesn't seem huge. But if 100 people see that and think, oh, I could do that, it doesn't cost much. Then we have this spread out effect of people touching migrants in ways that are impactful and importantly, beneficial to everyone. So that's a super long way of not answering, but saying the clothing is a vehicle for the impact that we hope to have on mass. The way that in your clothes you fuse these styles from African cultural influences with kind of the European canon, is that something that's attracted any unusual reactions or any kind of criticism, that mixing, that hybridity? It's really, really, really been interesting because, I mean, we're just at a strange point in history for many reasons. So I think I'll begin with a question of why I do that specifically. As you very articulately stated, I often reference images from classical, medieval, and Renaissance European art in the designs, whether they be in the scarves that I do, the silk scarves. For those who haven't seen them, you can imagine what would happen if Hermes made something that featured people of color in it. So the idea is it's it's objectively very, very beautiful and uses historical allegory to tell contemporary stories. But why that approach? Why that method? I do that again because that's kind of what we've all been conditioned to recognize instantly as, as beautiful. So I could certainly use images of traditional West African, you know, we've all seen like the the sculptures and the masks. Those we could use and that to me is of course equally beautiful because it's where I'm from, but it's less widely globally accepted as beauty. So if we're trying to kind of Trojan horse people who are disregarded into the wider narrative, you need to speak in a language that the wider narrative understands. Hence using the Mona Lisa's and names like Michelangelo, Caravaggio. These are things that we've all seen. Therefore, it's a conversation we can have together. It's like me speaking in English because it's a universal language of art and beauty. So we begin from that point of view of using images that we've all seen before. What we haven't seen is people of color within these images. So I think for the most part, people who share my background, who happen to be Black, Black American from the African diaspora, oftentimes the immediate reaction is of this uplifting, like very positive. It's almost like it's a joke that they get right away because it's a flip on the norm. And it's like, oh, finally, I can see and I can be proud to be in this position as opposed to be, again, in the background serving grapes. 
the interesting juxtaposition has been for a lot of people who are not black or brown and who admire the works because it's, again, it's spoken in a language that they get. Then I have people who are not black saying, I really love your designs. Let's say I'm a, a white man from Essex or wherever. It's beautiful. I don't know if it's okay for me to wear this because it has brown mm-hmm. people on it, which is a very, like a very honest, forthright thing to say. And it's a whole discussion we'll get into. But it's interesting because if you take the perspective of people from my background, we don't have the option of being like, I don't know if I can wear Gucci because even though there are no Black people historically in their work, this is the standard. So therefore, this is what we wear. So even if, for example, a Louis Vuitton has nothing to say about Black Lives Matter, this is what we're going to wear because this is what we want to look good in. And so when people who are not Black are confronted by work that is very Black, to put it simply, there's this moment of hesitation being, I'm not sure how okay it is for me to embrace this. There's so much historical baggage behind that. And and oftentimes it comes from a really good place of like, well, I don't want to offend. I don't want to gentrify this. I don't know if it's my place. Like I kind of get it, but I don't know if it's for me. And I think if nothing else, the answer from the person who is, whose intention is making this stuff is, Yes, absolutely appreciated every art from my point of view. All art is art to be consumed by anyone who it speaks to. You know, I don't hear Bach and say, I don't know if I can wear this because he's not African. I don't walk into a Japanese restaurant and say, I don't know if I can eat sushi because Japanese people aren't from where I'm from. My idea is that despite the very strong cultural identity of the work, that doesn't make it exclusive to be embraced by the whole world. In the same way I might appreciate Mexican cinema or the French New Wave, the hope is that no matter the visual or aesthetic background of the thing, it can still speak to your soul. All that to say, if you're a white guy from middle America and you happen to see something made by a Black designer and it speaks to your soul, please feel free to put it on. And the hope is that it sparks a conversation about unity and about togetherness and the things that we have in common, as opposed to having a conversation about people taking things from each other. I think that happens oftentimes when there's not an acknowledgement of the origins of a thing. But as long as one acknowledges the origins and pays homage, then I see no issue whatsoever with any culture overlapping or borrowing or being influenced by, because that is how we've gotten to where we are in the world in all spheres. It's by cultural overlapping and exchange. And I wonder how that relates to your involvement with Black Panther. I mean, Black Panther was this extraordinary coming together of this massive, traditionally white Hollywood Marvel canon with this very Black-influenced and inspired cultural story. And you were involved in designing some of the clothes for that. I wonder if you could talk about how some of those debates played out in the creation of that film and how it was received and how it felt to see your clothes on the big screen. So working with Marvel is like working with Beyonce and like working with any of these giant entities in the world. It's an incredibly hands-off process. You basically exist in a black box. So a mysterious message comes on from the heavens saying, are you interested in doing a thing with us? And of course you're enthusiastic. You sign NDAs and you work on a very, very tiny portion of a thing. And then it may or may not appear and be displayed to the world. So that was kind of the story with me and and Black Panther is we sent them a bunch of clothing with no idea of like what would actually happen. And then probably a year or so later, the Super Bowl is on TV and Super Bowl is for those who are in the U.S. is the football World Cup, I guess, in the the U.S. Commercials are a very big deal for it. And a commercial for the film comes on and me for the first time with the rest of the world sees a thing that I made in my home, a thing that lives in my closet, a thing that is very familiar to myself and to my daughter. It's just a thing in the house draped across the body of Chadwick Boseman, who's a huge star. And that is a continuously surreal thing. And the next moment was like a year later when we were watching the press screening in the film 
and I'm sitting there with my partner and, and we're in the theater with mostly press watching a movie and the movie runs throughout it and nothing happens and there's a post-credit scene I'm like oh and there it is and it is really really weird to see a thing that you conceived again in the smallness of your own home be broadcast the size of a wall in a dark room with people staring at it I guess it's a fairly unique experience, but it is, it's a really surreal one. And then to then see it take on a life of its own. So now a few years later, people getting married asked to wear these scarves, people graduating wear these scarves, people going out to dinner wear these scarves, because in part they saw these scarves depicted in a hugely successful and celebratory film. And I think, again, you return to the point of like having no control and not in a negative way, but you have no control over the narrative or life that your art takes on once it leaves your hands. And that can be a really beautiful thing because you have no idea who's being touched by the things that you make. If nothing else, Black Panther was, I think, evidence of what we all know, that if you create work that speaks to a population that's been thirsting for it, you can have commercial success. And so I think for so long, and perhaps to some continuing degree, in many spheres, there's this narrative of like, well, we can't make money because these people don't spend, or we can't make a movie that stars a person that looks like this because we can't invest in it, therefore it can't make money. I think people really just want honest, authentic stories that speak to them. And it doesn't really matter the skin tone. I mean, you have a film like Crazy Rich Asians as well, which was a huge success because it was a new point of view. And at a certain point, you have to realize that we've all heard these same stories so many times. If you bring something new to the table, that is ultimately what matters. And I think you'll find that many of us who have felt disregarded for so long are really, really thirsty and been yearning for something new and importantly, something beautiful, which is why when I embark on this new journey of creating film, it's with explicit and specific intent to create beauty. I grew up in an era in a world where the idea of being an African was not something to be proud of. And certainly when you see people from Africa on film, it was almost always negative, almost always primitive, almost always pejorative in some way. And so those are stories that we've heard. And so if you, if you want to put it simply, for me, the idea of creating Black beauty, both objectively from a visual aesthetic point of view, and also from a more ephemeral, beautiful story point of view, that is a relatively new thing. And that is what I'm most kind of enamored by, the idea of creating something that really is touching and happens to be featuring people who look like me. So if we're addressing the migration crises, we've all seen the little boy in Syria in the back of an ambulance covered in ash after an explosion. We've all seen the boy drowned on the beaches of Italy Less so have we seen the relatives of these individuals who, despite all the tragedy and trauma they've experienced, have some degree of some modicum of beauty in their lives. And I'm really interested in exploring that beauty and illustrating that beauty because I think it is through looking at the beauty in people's lives that we can more closely relate to and understand their pain as opposed to just turning a lens directly to their pain. There's often this conception that migrants are, for some reason, less sophisticated than we are. And that is not by any means the case. They're just as savvy, they read the news just as much as we do. Therefore, they're consuming the same images about themselves that we are. And probably more than anyone, migrants in general are exhausted by the images thrust upon them because it's just an unending parade of tragedy, which is not very helpful when you're on the way to make your life somewhere. It's just like, well, this is not gonna end well because all I see in the news is death and destruction. We are all human beings and we are all vain and we all have egos and we all, of course, want to put on some swag and be portrayed as the beautiful beings that we all are. So do you think that there's a slightly different way we can tell your story?
fashion and clothes for dignity. In my experience, you know, 12 years working in refugee camps, you know, those are fundamental things. When we were working in a pop-up camp in Italy, one of the first things that popped up after the kitchen was a hair salon. And, you know, we had, and, you know, people want to feel good. People want to look good. This question of feeling good, looking good, dignity and clothes is just something that I think is so important. But also, you know, you have people saying, could I get some nail varnish or, you know. Right. If there's a thing that fashion can do, you know, fashion is so powerful about making us feel inadequate, making us feel not thin enough, not good enough, not dressy or powerful enough for a meeting or for a party or whatever. But it can also make us the opposite. It can make us feel empowered. And so if we use this thing that has a track record for being generally negative in the world to be uplifting, and if we uplift those who are the most vulnerable, what does that do for them individually? And what does that do for our perceptions of them? And I think it's an open question, and it's kind of the ongoing experiment of my life currently. That thesis, I think, has weight and the potential for a really great impact. And I want to talk to you, Wally, because obviously you've worked all around the world, and now you're based in the U.S., you're a U.S. citizen. You wrote about the Black Lives Matter movement, that in our time, rage is justifiable, the pursuit of concrete action is necessary. Unless we forget, the telling of beautiful Black stories is crucial for our survival. I wondered if you could comment a bit more on that and how you position your work and any thoughts or evolution in your thinking that's happened over the last few months as we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement really take heat in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge question. I think, you know, we all are of so many minds and so many feelings about this because it's a blisteringly baffling time for anyone emotionally. It's just every day there's something else. And I've been all over the map with it. I think I've landed where I came into the conversation with it, that beauty is the weapon. The great fellow Kutuza, who's a Nigerian musician, once said music is the weapon of the future. I say beauty is the weapon of the future. The idea being that the most effective way to communication, to conversation is stunning people, not with rage, but with something that makes them pause and something that is transcendent. And that's not to say that rage doesn't have this place because I think sometimes you get attention by breaking a window. I mean, the fact that the George Floyd rallying cry was global was because of combined rage, not because of people writing very pretty songs or making very pretty fashion collections. So I think each thing has its place. You know, I'm, I'm often of the notion that every tool is necessary in, in the box and in each person has his or her place and each voice is essential in its own very unique way. And so we should kind of hone our unique voices so that we can use them in the best ways that they are suited. If we kind of relate this notion of is rage effective, certainly it has its place within the confines of, for example, the migration discussion as we've been having. Trauma and tragedy and making people feel guilt has been kind of the language of trying to mobilize help. If we think historically, images of starving Africans, babies with flies in their cheeks, to present day migrants drowning on beaches, all accurate and honest images. But my point of view is that when we see enough of these images, we become desensitized that we either turn away or we feel impotent and say, well, that's terrible, but it's all the way over there. And what can I possibly do about it? It's just too hard to face. And so I think my idea is, well, what happens if instead of thrusting guilt upon people, what happens if we thrust beauty? Instead of saying, stop killing black men in America. Yes, we can say that. What happens if we also say, By the way, these are the families that these men left behind. These are the children. This is the art that they made. This is what they cooked. This is the music they loved. This is who they were as a full, complete human being. This to me is using the language and the tools of beauty. If you inject beauty into the conversation, then those who are on the outside find it very, very difficult to turn away 
they don't feel impotent. And oftentimes when they look at these beautiful images, they see themselves. Who among us has not felt at some point distant from their family and wanted to connect with them? So I tell a story about migration. We're talking about families being separated and people missing each other, even though they're far across the globe. We're talking about somebody starting a new life in a distant place, which essentially is the story of all of us who are not indigenous to a place. When you, you couch a really complicated discussion in those very simple terms of human connection, that is where the spark happens. And that is where you really reach the audience that has been disregarding you for so long. I'm a Rage Against the Machine fan as much as everybody. You know, occasionally punk rock is necessary, but I think sometimes a sonata can be equally effective. I think that I'm strong because it's not everybody that can embark on that dangerous journey. Even with my condition that I was pregnant. I live in Italy, Calabria. I miss everybody in my family, all of them. We go to many countries and we reach here with our life. Yeah. It's true that the journey is difficult. But now that we are here, I think we should focus on the future. Let's embrace what we have. When you came to Harvard, you know, it really sparked quite a big debate. I don't know how aware of it you were at the time. but I was not. Um, mostly from students kind of something, oh, I'm not going to go to that. Like, you know, we've, wow, we've, got, really? we've got battles to fight and, you know, I don't want to talk about clothes and beauty, you know. And there is this tension right now between firefighting, this just horrendous day in, day out assault on immigrants, and then also doing the work of artists, doing the work of thinking and yep. celebrating when you were speaking with our students, you talked a lot about being a father and being an African father and very much a homemaker and kind of how you negotiate some of those roles. What's it like being a father to black children right now in this context in the US? Is this a conversation that you have with them? Mm, I have one daughter. Um, one is plenty, one is <laughs> enough, and she's incredible. It's been interesting. We actually, she's a little younger, so we have not had specific conversations. So we've chosen to not have specific conversations about the very hard realities that we all face. I'm sure that time and day will come. But I think what's worked for us thus far, obviously, is a parent. You get what you get, and you are lucky and fortunate to be blessed with that, and you just try to kind of shape it, not screw it up as you go along. I think we're just working to help raise and nurture an amazing person, and the hope is that via osmosis, by seeing an example of those she has around her. You know, she has parents who happen to be black. She has parents who happen to have friends of all ethnicities, but importantly, friends who are black and are amazing. And the hope is that by seeing these many myriad examples of cultural excellence all around her, it becomes the expectation, it becomes the norm, because that's what she knows. And I think that is how you raise a person who is open to the world, by exposing her to the world, by taking her with you, by letting her meet the very many hues and ethnicities that are out there and letting her appreciate this is what the world has to offer. And, you know, it's all of it is yours to embrace. Um, I think being insular has been the root cause of so much trouble. I mean, we think of America in general as, a, as an insular society and much of the world is veering towards this very protective, nationalistic, take care of my space only point of view. And that is dangerous. I think because I've had the great fortune of having lived in many places, it makes me a nomad, but it makes me very, very grateful and appreciative of everyone. 
I just have one final question. You are a successful immigrant Black man in the United States. What advice do you have for other young people in the U.S. at what is a really tricky time? I would say the thing that I didn't believe, this is for everyone who is young and comes to realize it later, your weakness is your strength. The fact that you are from somewhere else is what makes you unique. It's what gives you something to offer to the conversation. So much as we would love to blend in, to be like everyone else, because that brings us less attention, because that makes us easier to understand, because it makes us more palatable and acceptable. If we were everyone else, then there would be no reason for us to be looked at and looked upon. And so be the you that came into the world, because that's the you that has something new to bring. Today we talked about fashion. But another dimension of that word is image, and image and identity are so integral to how we approach and understand the topic of immigration, how prejudice is formed and how we perceive one another, how we feel good in our skin. I come here because I want to help my family. As we wrap up today's episode, I have to thank Harvard Art Museums for hosting Wally back in November with the exhibition Crossing Lines Constructing Home, Displacement and Belonging in Contemporary Art. It gave us all much food for thought. You can find out more about this exhibition, which was made almost entirely from works in their permanent collection, on the Harvard Art Museum's website. Another website to note down is ikarijones.com, where you can check out the trailer for Wale's film, After Migration, and his TED Talk, Fashion That Celebrates African Strength and Spirit. And last but not least, The Good Immigrant is published in two collections, The Good Immigrant UK and The Good Immigrant USA. Together they feature almost 50 powerful immigrant voices, It's definitely one to put on your reading list. If you liked today's conversation, please share it with a friend, give us a rating, or a review. You can send us your comments and questions on Twitter at the handle IIH underscore Harvard. This show was made possible by the Immigration Initiative at Harvard University. It was produced by Ziran Wang and Jennifer Alsop. Music by Ziran Wang. Audio clips courtesy of Wally. And the track you're listening to right now, Becoming Adult, is by Yusuf Tahiru, Alessandro Di Francesco, and Simone Ndaye. Special thanks to our guest, Wale Oyejide, and thank you for tuning in. Becoming adults in another mess land. Why are you separating us by borders? You see, we all from one continent, night it's so dark, it's gonna be spark. I should have been in my home, but home is not for me I'm yet to take the best of my life, so let me live Peace always wins, I guess, world, because peace come twice Becoming adults in another man's land So different cultures, a different language too many questions that need to be answered Night is so dark, night is so dark